This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon. This is Michael Sembalis with the Eye on the Market podcast from my remote location. Uh, the, there's an eye in the market coming out tomorrow called Man versus Nature, and the point is to focus on the things the government can try and fix and what it can't. Uh, it's mostly, it's a pretty quick read, it's mostly charts. Let me just walk you through what we have in here. We have some high-frequency manufacturing and consumer data measures. These things are pretty hard to revive, just with monetary and fiscal policy, obviously, when there's lockdowns in place. Uh, and so the idea is we're going to start tracking uh, the coincidence of, of infections, lockdowns, uh, and economic activity, the same way we're doing in China. Um, in terms of that jobless claim number last week, it's not quite the same number, that surge, that you get during a typical demand-led recession, given the speed with which people might go back to work this time once the lockdowns are lifted, uh, and also provisions in the stimulus bill designed to incentivize companies to hire these fired workers back. Uh, but still, we're, we're bracing for pretty sharp uh, downward jolt in economic activity uh, in both Q2 and then again in Q3. Um, so uh, what we're going to start doing, though, is again tracking uh, how some of these various measures play out to give us an indication of when financial markets might bottom. And there's a page in here uh, where we walk through a history of labor markets and asset prices. And I don't know if the March 23rd close on the S&P of 2200 is going to mark the low for the cycle. It's probably too early for that. Uh, but when the bottom does occur, I expect it to be pretty consistent with prior cycles in both the U.S. and Europe, in which case the equity markets bottom way before unemployment uh, st uh, starts declining. And usually markets bottom even as unemployment still rising. The best example of that during the stagflation era of the 1970s, equities bottomed when unemployment was just starting to rise. You know, the tech collapse was, was the big exception. Uh, the other thing we're starting to measure in terms of what the government can control is the Fed's ability to alleviate a credit crunch. There's a whole bunch of credit facilities that have been designed to alleviate the pressure in the credit markets. Um, First thing to note is that in most cases, not all, but in most cases, the spread widening so far is much smaller than in 2008, which I think reflects improvements in the plumbing and capitalization of the banking sector. And uh, the most remarkable chart to me is the one that shows how bank debt spreads have barely budged versus other investment-grade issuers, whereas in 2008, uh, the bank spreads blew out by two to 300 basis points versus other investment-grade bonds. So uh, there is evidence that the the improvements to the financial system uh, are, are, are having an impact uh, this time around. So we see value, given all these Fed facilities, in investment-grade credit, some select municipal issuers, and maybe some upper-tier non-energy high yield. Um, and we have a whole bunch of charts in here, all of which are also posted in our online coronavirus portal uh, and which are updated frequently. So you can see what's going on in terms of LIBOR versus the Fed funds rate and versus treasuries, commercial paper, investment-grade corporate bonds, as I mentioned, mortgages, high-yield, preferreds, emerging markets, leveraged loans, things like that. So what we're doing is we're tracking how those things are trading. And, and, and I do think what the Fed's doing here is uh, putting something of a floor 
underneath some of the most high quality issues. And again, that's where we do see some value. Now, on to the other things that governments can't fix so easily. There's, uh, there's been a little bit of an unraveling of the chloroquine story. And um, uh, I just want to make it very clear, many of the antiviral studies that have, you've seen reported in the press so far uh, don't meet any of the qualifications of what's typically a lengthy and complex process of randomized trials and control groups and population sets and things like that that are designed to demonstrate the efficacy and the safety of some of these drugs. And uh, while some of them may be used eventually to combat the disease, it's a little premature based on these non-randomized trials of 20 or 30 people to draw concrete inferences about their effectiveness. And we have some, an interesting chart here showing that there, while there were thousands of antiviral drugs proposed in the scientific literature over the last 50 years, only 90 of them have ever been approved for final use, and around half of those were just for HIV on its own. Uh, and so there's some perspective here that I think is worth looking at. Uh, we show uh, the results of some of the, uh, some of the live trials and some of the, the cell culture trials, but I just want to walk through just for a second. Uh, it's now clear that some of the studies that have been floating around in the press were completely non-randomized trials. There were no discussions of clinical outcomes. Uh, some of the recipients of the drugs weren't discussed in the final results. Um, sometimes the control group had a more intense measure of the virus starting out than the infected patients, which could explain why the control group was still infected at the end, and, and a bunch of other things in here. And, and there have, so the chloroquine story has been muddied further by uh, other studies which have found no benefits at all when looking at control groups versus these things. So um, uh, the big issue is that there's enough rationale, I think, to continue investigating some of these drugs, antiviral drugs, that have been approved for other diseases in COVID-19 patients uh, in hospitalized settings. But the idea that they're, that they should be used as a preventative on a prophylactic basis, uh, I don't think stands up right now. So uh, in any case, we have an update on all of the uh, antiviral and vaccine stuff going on. And the last thing I wanted to comment on uh, this week is some of you have asked why we haven't published any prediction curves for the infections. And there's a two-pager here at the end of the Eye on the Market on Monday, which gets into that. It's really only for people that like math. So I have to warn you, if you don't like math, you do not want to read this. But um, there are these epidemic, epidemic, outbreak, epidemic outbreak models based on the SIR model that was developed in the 20s. Uh, we've adapted a version of it and it estimates the number of active infections uh, in a given exposed population based on the rate of new infections, recoveries, mortalities, infectiousness, removal rates, and a bunch of other things. It sounds very scientific, but there's a lot of very, very manual curve fitting going on. Uh, and the big problem is it's very hard to predict reported infections for a very infectious disease like COVID when you have such large numbers of infected people who are asymptomatic or for other reasons not reported because the model gets confused because it, it, it has to try to reconcile the smaller number of reported cases versus what it's expecting. So I, I, there's a series of charts in here that are kind of interesting. It, it looks at how well the model worked in Korea, uh, which could have been serendipity and I suspect may have been, but even so, the, the model did a pretty decent job 
in Korea. And then if you took those parameters and you applied them at the time to what you thought was going to happen for Italy, it would have been a disastrous failure. Um, using the Korea parameters predicted a peak infection rate of 9,000 in Italy, and we have 62,000 just so far. And, and there, there's, there's too many exogenous variables that affect the way these things work for these models to be used reliably uh, across countries. And you can take a look at it. The bottom line is that these, these models have to be constantly updated to fit the observed infection rates in each country. So what you learn by fitting parameters for one country has almost zero value in predicting the evolution of infections in any other country. And even the predictions you make within a country can shift wildly with testing and policy changes. So the best you can do is use them to provide a very rough estimate of infection trajectories for a single country, assuming that policy testing behaviors don't change, and you could still be wrong. And so far what I've seen is that these models are most accurate when the infection rates have already peaked, at which point they become moot and you don't need them anymore. So anyway, that's, uh, that's the story. We have, again, we have uh, all of our coronavirus materials on markets, economics, vaccines, infections, mortality, and all of the charts derived from that data are updated on a high-frequency basis on our coronavirus research chart. Uh, take a look online, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.